section number two of the rover volume one number 21 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the rover volume one number 21 edited by seba smith and lawrence Labrie. section number two the lovers or the wager of a thousand ducats by lawrence Labrie. Two sweet lovers were Carl Hartz and Mita von Brenner. He all gentleness and love, she all purity and faith. He, to her, but a poor student, she the daughter of a rich and powerful baron. They had first met at a masked ball. Afterward, they contrived various meetings in secret. Carl bold and fervent in his assurances of affection, Mita no less fervent, but with fear and trembling. She never promised to meet him but she thought of her proud old father and of her reckless and haughty brother. But always the sweet words of Carl would give confidence to her heart, and they were never long together ere she forgot both father and brother. They met one day in the park near her father's castle, and as they walked beneath the branches of the great trees and over the green lawn, both seemed more than usually happy, and ever, as their blue eyes met, did they drink, each from the other, such sweet assurances of affection that it came to their innocent spirits like cooling water to the thirsty traveler. At times, absorbed in their sweet discourse, they would stop, and then, with her fair forehead resting against his soft cheek, her full soul would echo to the delicious harmony of his fond adorations, and she marveled that his pure thought should be so much given to heaven and to herself. He appeared to her all spiritual, so little of earth's grossness seemed mixed in with his constitution. She had broken a fair flower from the stem, wherein it had blossomed, but while she listened to her lover's wooing, she was unconscious that she was plucking its leaves out, one by one. Never at any previous meeting had so many sweet things been said, nor stronger vows of affection plighted, and when they parted it was with the kindest assurances to meet again ere long. But alas, the designs of human will are subject to the merest accidents, and there is no certainty of performing tomorrow what is promised today. They parted. She to seek the privacy of her apartment, he to pursue his solitary studies. He took his way through the shaded walks of the park, while happy thoughts thronged in his brain, and glorious emotions thrilled his heart. He had reached the wall, and with a light step was about to spring over, when he was arrested by the sound of a mocking voice. Ho, ho, sir beggar, you have a nimble foot for a nobleman's park, and your fingers are as light, belike you can adapt them to trifles as much facility as you can make your feet leap stone walls. In sooth, sir, replied Carl, you must speak in jest, for by your appearance or by your apparel, I would assume you for a gentleman. And by the same judgment, said the stranger, I would mark you for a knave or a fool. Tis an unjust judgment, said Carl, and would breed offense, but that I still take you for gentle and would believe you jesting. Jesting. If you are no coward, as I think you are, and were not your instrument for ornament, a single pass or two would prove how earnest I am. By my life, said Carl, if by this mystery you hint at fighting, I really must laugh. The jest is so excellently well adopted. I doubt not, but I could soon learn to love you as a brother, for spite of your disguise, I pierce it and perceive your infinite good qualities. The other seemed puzzled at the coolness with which Carl replied to his insulting language, and for a moment paused, suddenly turning toward him, he exclaimed, I have met you, Sir Beggar, before, 
This time I had resolved to chastise you, but you only excite my contempt, not my anger. If I meet you in these grounds again, I will expel you as I would a cur by kicking. Heaven preserve us, exclaimed Carl. Are you not afraid of dogs? For my part, I cannot bear to look at them. Cease to trouble me. In the warm season, they are said to be dangerous. Do you ever bite? Enraged at the sarcastic coolness of Carl, the stranger, by the way, a brother of Mita's, Frederick von Brenner, hastily drew his sword and with it struck him on the shoulder. In an instant, the warm blood rushed to the cheek of Carl, and his weapon leapt from his scabbard with indignant motion. Frederick von Brenner, said Carl, you have done almost the only thing in your power to make me draw my sword against you. Your offense was language I would have let pass unpunished, but the blow must be answered with your blood. On your defense. Their swords were crossed, and for a minute the contest was warm and doubtful, but for the coolness of Carl and his graceful skill were much more than a match for the awkward impetuosity of von Brenner, and the latter had soon the satisfaction of seeing his weapon flying over the wall and himself in the power of his opponent. Farewell, my dear Frederick, cried Carl. Take my advice and seek a fencing master. You'll need much instruction ere we meet again. When we do, I hope to find you proficient. As it is an amusement I am fond of, I dislike to have it so abruptly terminated. Saying this, Carl sprang over the wall, leaving von Brenner covered with shame and confusion at seeing himself so completely forced to combat. Maddened at being thus foiled, Frederick hastily sought the presence of his sister. As he entered her apartment, she was busied with some needlework, and her beautiful face was glowing with smiles of happiness and love. The rude entrance of her brother at first startled her, but she rose to receive him, and her bright smiles vanished before his stern, cold gaze. For a moment he spoke not, and Mita became surprised and somewhat offended at his rudeness. This is strange, Frederick. Why do you intrude upon my privacy with so oddy an air? Are you out of your senses, or what has crossed you that you stare so wildly? I have been crossed by a base fool, and let me advise you, sister of mine, to be more chary of who you accompany, nor be seen strolling in unfrequented walks with every beggar who may cross your path. This is strange language, Frederick. Explain yourself. Excellent innocence, Mita. What base-born chill did I see you in company with this morning, for a whole hour? Will you deny that? I deny nothing, sir. If you are mean enough to dog me in my rambles, whether alone or not, the like you saw me and the company of one, at least your superior. I like it not, Frederick, to assume an equal haughtiness with yourself. I will assure you that I shall in future defend myself from your curious disposition. This sits well on you, but be sure you give your beggarly cavalier timely caution, that when our paths cross again, if he but look at his horoscope, he will see danger near his natal star. Leave me, brother. I will not listen to your abuse. Leave me. At least I claim the privacy of my own apartment. Be it so, sister. But mark, shun such company as you have this morning kept, or I will find a more certain method to stop the wooing. Remember. Saying this, Frederick hastily quitted the presence of his sister, who, as soon as she was left alone, gave utterance to her wounded heart and passionate sorrow and tears of bitter grief. Sweet Nita, they were... The first sorrowful moments that ever cast their shadows over the brightness of her innocent existence. Well might the beautiful Mina feel grieved at the rude treatment of her ungentle brother, but for all that she might suffer herself, she gave small heed to. It was for her beloved Carl that she became alarmed, for she knew that the impetuous character of Frederick might prompt him 
the deeds of rashness to accomplish any purpose in view, and she trembled lest some terrible evil might overtake her lover ere she again beheld him. She had known him but a short time, but in that time she had learned to think of him with the devotion such as only woman can feel toward the object of her passion. She believed him to be no more than a poor student, depending upon the good will of a few friends for his position at the university, and she knew not when the height he aspired to was attained, that he had more than a soul of honor and bright talent to assist him in sustaining the overpowering difficulties of an ungenerous world. Yet for all this, how ready was she, the beautiful, to become his companion through life's dull voyage, to encourage him when the strong current of misfortune set against him, and to smile upon and cheer him when fortune showered upon him her jealous favors. She, the daughter of a noble house, the heiress of a princely dowry, was ready to share the humble fortunes of the poor student of Woodsburg. We must now let our readers into a secret. Carl was, in fact, deceiving his lovely and trusting Nita, for he was not the poor student that he represented himself to be, but the heir to the fortunes and the honors of one of the noblest houses of Germany. His adventure originated in a gay freak, a bet with the young Count of Wertheim. They were in company on the day succeeding the evening that Carl had first met Nita at the masked ball. He was lavish in his praises of her beauty and her modesty, and the Count was rallying him upon having fallen in love with the rich Baron's daughter. To be sure, Carl did not overlike his joking upon so delicate a subject as whoever did when under the influence of the little blind god. But the Count was fond of his pleasant veins, and who shall condemn him for all the mirth he can find in this melancholy world? But my dear Carl, said the Count, Carl was his name. How, in the name of the Immaculate Luther, did you get a sight of her bewitching face? For with all my skill in managing such things, I could not get my eyes beneath her mask during the entire evening. Nay, my good Count of Wertheim, answered Karl, you must not expect me to let you into all the secrets of my wooing. You will believe me if I tell you that I did get a sight of her sweet face and her bright eyes, and for that reason did I fall desperately in love with them. Ah, sighed the Count, if such be the case... We may as well conclude upon you success at once, for against such a figure and so eloquent a voice, what fair maiden could succeed in keeping her heart? And when to that we add your magnificent title and your exhaustless revenues, one might almost swear there could be no withstanding you. How say you, Carl? How say I, replied Carl. Why, to hear you, one would think that were it not for my magnificent title and exhaustless revenues, as you are pleased to designate them, I should stand but a small chance of being listened to by any fair damsel of quality in Wartburg. I have that opinion of the fickle creatures, my dear Marquise, replied the Count, and I consider them somewhat in the light of moths. They much delight to flutter around the dazzling flame that gives them to destruction. To be plain, Karl, I think that did she know you only as plain Karl Kloschheimer, or some other unassuming name without a title, daughter of the proud baron would seek some other object on which to bestow her radiant smiles. There I think you are mistaken, Count, said Karl, for I purposely took much pains to deceive her on that point. I assumed to be nothing more than a poor student who had no brighter hopes to cheer him than the goal pointed out by his ambition. But do you not suppose that she saw through your pretense all the while, my romantic Marquise, or do you not think 
there were those present who did know you, and who whispered in her ear much of the company of the Marquise of Anspach. I will not believe it, exclaimed Karl. I really have a higher opinion of the lady, nor do I believe that she is so much influenced by pride of rank as most ladies of gentle birth, and I further flatter myself that were I in fact what I represented myself to her as being, that I could finally succeed in winning both her confidence and her love. Now, Carl, I must acknowledge that you are jesting with an honest-looking face, but you must give me the privilege of smiling at the conceit. You certainly have the privilege of laughing at the conceit, replied Carl. But if you doubt this, the effect, I will lay you a wager of a thousand ducats, that, assuming to be but a poor student, I will so far win the affections of this baron's daughter, that she will prefer me to the proudest cavalier in Germany. I accept the wager, said the count though I confess I do not much like to risk so significant a sum upon the caprice of a woman. I will take your honor that you hold the terms of the wager sacred. Bout it quick, Carl, for I am impatient to see you commence your wooing as the poor student of Würzburg. Under these circumstances, Carl lost no time in putting his faculties to action, nor was he long in finding an opportunity to address the mistress of his devotions. How he sped in his wooing, the opening of our story has already told, and if our readers have in their composition any response to the delicate sentiments of love, any echo to the holy aspirations of woman's heart, let them say if they believe that Mina did not think more of her humble worshipper than of all the gilded titles in the empire. A few weeks after the meeting between the Marquise and Frederick, the former gave his friend the Count of Wurheim to understand that could he take the advantage of a hint and wished to decide the wager that was between them, he might conveniently do so by being near an arbor at the western side of the Baron von Brenner's park an hour after the sun had set. To the Count, this information was somewhat confused, but he determined at any rate to be there, for he had no reason to doubt that he would get some positive information on the point at issue between them. Leaving him, therefore, to make his preparations accordingly, we will accompany our readers to the scene of the grand denouement, as theatrical managers say. The sun had gone down in glory, and nature seemed quiet as a sleeping infant. No cloud dappled the starry firmament, and the soft and wanton breezes sighed murmuringly over the fair face of earth. Through one of the less frequented avenues of a park, in close companionship seemingly and sweet converse, walked, or rather lingered, two human beings in the glow of youth. Beauty, like a diadem, crowned their fair brows, and nature, as though she acknowledged a diviner presence, seemed to blend around them her sweetest harmonies. Glowing thoughts must have had utterance, for the fairest and gentlest of the twain seemed to drink with much thirst from the overflowing fountain of the other's exhaustless speech, nor ever seemed he tired of filling her listening ear with eloquent sentences. They approached an arbor, and before its ivied entrance did they linger, he all the while discoursing such rare music as seemed to entrance her gentle spirit. Ah, said he, you have learned me a new devotion. Before I met you, I knew not the slumbering emotions of my heart. I was contented with my lowly lot, and my ambition was learning. The bright goal I sought was fame. The keys to her temple were my books. I had no regret that I was a peasant's son, that I was not noble. Ah, I had not then seen the sweetest maid in Christendom. No more about your birth, said she. 
How could the accident of your being born noble affect the worth of your soul? How affect its nobility? Nay, had you been as you desire, perchance we never had met. But it stands between me and hope, said he. Not between you and hope, Carl. Believe me, I am as fondly yours as though a coronet were on your brow, and you were glittering with useless titles. You tell me that my father is proud, that my brother is haughty, but what can they do if I choose to obey my own inclinations? Will they disown me? Be it so. Am I not equally as able to be a sharer in your joys and your sorrows, as though I were born in a cottage? Do not grieve me by such comparisons, Carl, nor think me forward that I speak as I do. Raise obstacles that I must overthrow. And neither would you be willing to share a humble cottage with me and frugal fare, could you be content to relinquish all your present delicacies and share the humble lot of the poor student who could repay you with nothing but his soul's fondest attachment? Ah, how amply will that repay me, a thousandfold! For with that fond attachment, how might I smile at the gaudiness of this world? How light would seem the burdens of our existence? Oh, Carl, I fear I say bold things, but your imagination so separates our positions that I am compelled unwittingly to be myself a war. Not my soul its worship, and I can never seek another shrine. You ask me if I could relinquish all my present delicacies. Ah, uh, what delicacy is there like love? Does it not make a palace of a hovel, and without it does not the palace become a dreary prison? Beloved Mita, how could I fail, by thy example, to be inspired to noble ambition with such a guardian spirit? How could I fail to reach the dazzling pinnacle of fame? When we first met, thy path was strewn with flowers, and over thy happy heart contentment held her misty veil. Like the first Eden, no luring serpent's tongue had poisoned its atmosphere of holiness, and all thy walking thoughts and sleeping visions were of bliss. But I have breathed discord in your ear, and the perfect harmony of your soul has been marred. I have given strange tenants to your heart, mistrust, fear, and suspense. I am to blame that I forgot my station, that I awoke your soul from its calm and holy peace. No, Carl, blame not yourself. You have not lessened my happiness, but, on the contrary, you have given me a new joy that adds a thousandfold to the pleasures of my existence. Think me not placed above you, but onward in your proud march of ambition. Acquire that fame which I know you have the power to win, and it will be you that exalts. Then if you love me as you do now, your affection will be to me a protecting shield in all danger, a healing balm in all sorrow. Sweet sophistry, tell me again, do you not think there are others more worthy of your love than the poor student? Would you not sigh for the rank and station that you put aside? Do not doubt me, Carl. My destiny is fixed. I have linked my fate with yours, and your lonely study let this encourage you. Through weal or woe, remember, Mita loves you. Further conversation between them was interrupted by the sound of hasty footsteps, and the next moment, Frederick von Brenner stood before the lovers, with his sword drawn and trembling with rage. Mita started, uttered a surprised cry, and sprang to the side of her brother to prevent him from committing any assault upon Carl, for in his dangerous manner she read the purpose of his excited spirit. But Frederick pushed her rudely from him, at the same time crying out to Carl, Now, braggart villain, prepare to meet such chastisement as you deserve. I will not murder you, but will give you the privilege of defense that, however, will avail you but, a, but slightly, for I have sworn to have your heart's blood. My offense, good sir? asked Toro. 
You have sought to stain the honor of our house, replied Frederick. Where is your weapon? Tis here, answered Carl, drawing. As good and as perfect as when we first met. Have you practiced? Fool, I came here to practice, exclaimed Frederick passionately. In that case, I can amuse you for a few moments, or longer if you please. It is a rare sport, and I have grown over-fond of it, being in practice every day. Frederick, eager to commence the fray, rushed upon his adversary, who received and parried his thrusts with provoking coolness. But at the first clash of steel, Mita uttered a shriek of terror, and at the same moment a person, muffled in cloak, rushed from behind the arbor and parted the assailants. Hold, cried he. Von Brenner, you draw your sword upon the young Marquis of Anspach. The Marquis of Anspach, echoed Frederick. Explain yourself, sir. Mita moved to the side of her brother as he listened to the explanation of the stranger, who was none other than the Count of Wertheim, and recognized by Frederick the moment he dropped his disguise. The Count related the manner in which Mita and the Marquis had first met, the character the latter had assumed, the progress of their passion, the wager, and their many subsequent interviews, and other important things connected with the adventure. When von Brenner had heard the explanation, he seemed puzzled in the extreme, whether to laugh or make the affair serious. Turning to his sister, who stood at his side in tears, he kindly took her hand and kissed her fair forehead. Then addressing Marquise, he said, This has been a singular affair, and I am at a loss how to unsay the many uncivil things I have spoken to you. I must seek my apology in your disguise. I know not if I do not more envy than dislike you. You must promise, however, to give me private lessons in fencing. In the meantime, let me hope for a speedy and happy termination to this adventure. I need not ask my sister here to say amen. You have my thanks for your generosity, replied the Marquise, but here is one whose pardon I must ask. What say you, Mita? Will you forgive the poor student, and can you love him as warmly as ever? Mita had no answer for him, but she threw herself into his arms, an act in itself confessing everything. After all, said the Marquise, it has been a sweet adventure. Fortunately for my scheme, I was unknown to my late adversary, although I recognized him. As for the wager, Count, I acknowledge it as fairly won by yourself, said the Count, and am more than repaid by the pleasure I feel in congratulating you on your success. But why follow the thread of my story further? Let it suffice that they parted, each full of happy thoughts. But ere many months rolled away, there was a merrier, a more numerous, and a more brilliant meeting to celebrate the nuptials of the Marquise of Anspach and the sweet daughter of the Baron von Brenner. And there, in the presence of the gorgeous assemblage, did the Count of Wertheim pay into the hands of the noble bridegroom the wager of a thousand ducats. End of section two. Read by B. Garretson on August 16th, 2021.